But today we're in Revelation chapter 7, and as we conclude this month, in the month of January, looking at a number of sermon topics that that just sort of help lay a foundation for who we are as a church and what we are to think about, we have talked about who we are as a church, the mission of the church, and the glory of Christ, and the glory of Scripture, and last week, uh, the glory of prayer. Today we want to look at the glory of heaven. And I, I almost want to confess, on the one hand, that I don't preach this enough. I don't think about this enough. I don't encourage you enough with this, but I hope and pray that God will use his word through me to encourage and teach and minister to your soul today. I want to preach a sermon that I have entitled, The Glory of Heaven, Perfect Sight of, and Pure Satisfaction in Christ. One more time, let's pray and ask God to help. Great God. We pray that what we do not know, you would teach us. And what we are not, that you would make us. And that you would fill us with greater love for Christ. And inflame our hearts with where we as true believers will be for all of eternity At the moment we die or the moment you return, teach us, we pray, O Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. When you think about the topic of heaven, what comes to your mind? When you think about heaven, what comes to your mind? Maybe it's a place and the things that you have thought about and the things that you have read about, perhaps on, in scriptures or blogs or different books or things you've heard from sermons. Maybe it's an environment that you're looking forward to being in. Maybe it's the people that will be there and the loved ones that have gone on before you or all the saints of all time that have believed in the Lord that are currently in heaven. Or maybe you're here and you just think, I don't know what heaven is going to be like. I don't know. And it's a little bit daunting to think about eternity regarding a place that you might not know too much about. What I hope to convey today through the Word of God in Revelation 7 and much of Scripture is I want to convey that the beauty and the glory of heaven is not so much the place as much as it is the person of Christ who occupies the center point of heaven. John Newton was the author of Amazing Grace. He thought much about heaven. Yes, he was a hymn writer, and yes, he was a theologian, and yes, he was a pastor, but he was a man who was utterly amazed that God would show grace towards such a sinner as him and that God would carry him all the way to heaven. He said this, One sight of the glorified Christ will fill all of our hearts and dry up all of our tears. One sight of Christ. You've heard of heaven as being a place of streets of gold. Revelation teaches that. You've heard of heaven as being as a place that Jesus said was with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the redeemed. And that's true. 
You've heard about the new city of Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth. You've heard in the Bible that there's no more sea, no more need for the sun, no more need for the moon, no more need for a lamp. You've heard about all of that. And and additionally, you've heard that there's no more pain, no more sickness, no suffering, no sorrow. Indeed, in heaven, there will be family, there will be friends, and all the redeemed who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's true. All that is true. But as great and real and true as all of those are, none of those make heaven to be heaven. It's not about being in a place. It's about being with the person of Christ. That's why the Puritans would often say, I would rather be in hell with Jesus than to be in heaven without him. Think about that. By the end of our time this evening, I want you to think about that statement, and may that be the cry of your heart as well. Wherever Christ is, I want to be there. That's heaven to me. But wherever Christ is not, that is hell to me. It's kind of like when I was reading in the book of Philippians the other day, Paul said in Philippians 1, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to go on living in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. But I don't know what to choose because I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. That's heaven for Paul. I want to depart and be with Christ. I want to be with him. I want to see him, enjoy him, delight in him, worship him, be in his presence forever. The Bible teaches that when we are in heaven, we are with Christ. We are with him. We're with the lamb. We are in his presence and enjoying him forever. Jesus Christ is the very center of heaven. He is the glory of heaven. He is the focus of heaven. He is the the very delight of heaven. And my goal and my prayer and my ambition is to excite you for heaven. It's like if I were to tell my children... We're going to go on a road trip. And we're going to go to a hotel in the middle of winter where they have an indoor water park. Well, you can imagine how excited my kids would be. The rides and the lodge and the food and all the water exciting things. And they would be so thrilled and excited of what awaits them. It's like when I was in California serving as a pastor there, I would lead trips to Israel and I would gather the group together for a number of occasions and I would show them pictures on the PowerPoint. Look at where we're going to go. Look at what we're going to see. Look at where Jesus walked. And let's get excited about what we are going to enjoy. It's like when I was engaged to Elizabeth. We were awaiting the glory of marriage and our relationship and the intimacy and the togetherness and the joy and the union of a life together of marriage. Oh, the excitement that awaited us. 
I want you to think on heaven. I, I want you to be excited. I want you to be thrilled. I want your heart to be one today. Because, because as the Puritans would often say, on earth, you and I enjoy Jesus Christ by drops. Now, it's true, and, and it's glorious, and it's truly Christ, but it's drops. But when we are in heaven, we will enjoy the fullness of the ocean of Christ forever and ever and ever. Christopher Love was a a Puritan martyr, and he said, The elect should think their deathbed to be the very suburbs of heaven. I can't wait to go home. The Bible says a lot about heaven. Let me just give you a little survey together. You can jot these down or just listen. In Revelation 15, it's one of my most favorite chapters in the book of Revelation. It's all about the singing of God-centered, Christ-exalting, biblically-saturated truth about redemption. It's all about the praises of heaven, and it's all about God. In Revelation 21, we learn that heaven is a place where all things are new. All things are brand new. All the godly are shut in, and all the ungodly are forever shut out. In Revelation chapter 22, we learn about heaven, that it is the center point of seeing the face of God. No more curse, no more pain, no more tears. We will behold the face of God forever. As we saw this week at the prayer meeting on Psalm 16 on Wednesday, we saw that heaven is a place where we will swim in the infinite fullness of joy in God's presence because his pleasures are infinite at his right hand. And we will enjoy that forever and ever and ever. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 tells us the promise that we will be with Jesus Christ at the very instant of our death. The very instant of our death, to be absent from the body is to be present or at home with the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 teaches that one day in glory, we will have new bodies. We will have glorified bodies. You will be made like Jesus Christ, holy, pure, perfect, not able to sin. Oh, for that day. Jesus tells the story in Luke chapter 16 where heaven is a place of intimate nearness and fellowship and communion with all of the saints of all of the ages, including Abraham. Paul talks about glory in 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 17 by just saying we will always be with the Lord. Always be with the Lord. 2 Peter chapter 3 says we're awaiting a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Don't you long for that? A place where righteousness dwells. In Jude verse 24, at the very end of this wonderful little book about guarding the gospel, Jude says God will make you stand in the presence of his glory blameless and God will make you stand with great joy in heaven forever. To him be the glory forever and ever. Revelation chapter 3 teaches about heaven that you will be clothed in white. Jesus will confess your name before the Father in glory, Revelation 3, 5. I'm not sure what that means, but that's got to be awesome. Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 to 14 
tells us, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor, glory and dominion forever and ever. This is heaven. Christian, this is your home. You're a citizen of heaven. You're not so much a citizen of this world. It's temporary. It's passing. You could change your citizenship from one country to another. But you can't change your citizenship from heaven. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. So the focus in the Bible, when we learn about heaven, when we learn about glory, is not so much on the place, although there's teaching on that. The focus is on the person. The focus is not on the residents that are there, but it's on the Redeemer who occupies the spotlight. The focus of heaven is not on the streets of gold, but it's on the Savior who has made you white by his own blood. The focus is not on the city dimensions, although there is that of the New Jerusalem, but on the Savior and his perfect redemption. So, if heaven is a Christocentric place, then shouldn't your life be Christocentric as you prepare for it? Shouldn't our relationships be Christocentric? If, if, if heaven is full of remembering the work of Christ for you, shouldn't your life and my life be just a constant chorus of praise to Christ who redeemed us? If heaven, as Revelation teaches, is filled with biblical, scriptural language extolling God and magnifying his grace, shouldn't that mark our lives now? If heaven is a holy place, shouldn't your heart and your words and your life and your actions and your leisure be holy as well? We are children of heaven. We are headed for the heavenly city. We are longing for that day when we will arrive there. And now for our time together, I want to talk about that. I want to preach on that so that we would be excited and thrilled about the glory of heaven from the end of Revelation 7. Follow with me as I read Revelation 7. Verses 15 to 17. And the context here is those who have come out of the great tribulation. Their robes are washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. Now verse 15. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. They will hunger no longer nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. For the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. The book of Revelation is a prophecy. It is a prophecy Meaning it is a testimony. It is the unveiling, it is the revealing of Jesus Christ to the Apostle John as he writes it down to give to you and me and believers. 
It is a book of hope. It's a book of truth. It's a, it's a book of future prophetic realities. But primarily, it's a book that brings the spotlight on the triumphant Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 of Revelation is all about the d- divine glory of Christ and the power and presence of Christ among his churches. In chapters 2 and 3, Revelation is the letters to seven local churches and by application to all churches as well. In chapters 4 and 5, it is the worship of heaven and Christ's authority to bring judgments in the future. Chapter 6 is the first series of sealed judgments on the earth that God will bring in the future tribulation. And now in chapter 7, Revelation 7 is the plan of God to save, seal, and employ 144,000 Jewish people in the future tribulation, 12,000 from every one of the 12 tribes, and they will be God's witnesses in that future period. There is a very definite number in verses 1 to 8, 144,000. But then you turn to verse 9 to 17, and we learn about the Gentile martyrs. That is a general, an indefinite multitude that will stand before the throne. And they will worship God in heaven because they have been washed by the blood of the Lamb. And what's so amazing about these verses is the focus is not on how the martyrs died, but the focus is on where they are when they die. The focus of these verses is that they have washed their robes, they have made them white in the blood of the Lamb, they were saints on the earth, they were slain to death, and now they are satisfied in glory. The end of Revelation 7 gives us not just a glimpse, but a pretty awesome and an awe-inspiring explanation of the glory of heaven. For our time together, I want to give you five future certainties of heaven. Now, I want you to take notes if you have a pen or a bulletin near you because this is your home. This is where you're going. This is where you're headed. Look, you might not make it home to your house tonight. Something could happen. But Christian, you will make it to heaven at some point. So this is your future home. Five future certainties that not even the devil can break any of these. Not even the demons. No temptation. Nothing you could ever do could thwart this future homegoing for every true believer. I want to show you why it really is true, Paul said, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Here's the first. The first reality. Heaven is the very presence of God. Heaven is the very presence of God. And we see that right here in verse 15. For this reason, they, that is those who are washed, they are before the throne of God. I mean, Christian, hear this right now. You and I live by faith, right? We live by faith. But there we will see our God and we will live by sight. Exodus chapter 33, verse 20. God said, no man can see me and live. 
Manoah said in Judges 13, 22, he said to his wife, we will surely die because we have seen God. John 1, 18, no one has seen God. First John says the same thing. But yet right here in verse 15, the text says that all true believers who are washed and made white by the blood of the Lamb, you will be before the throne of God. Literally in the Greek, you will be in the sight of God. You will be in the front of God. It's the exact same language that we read in Revelation chapter 4. With the 24 thrones and the 24 elders, and they are worshiping the Lord. The seven spirits of God, that's the Holy Spirit himself in his sevenfold nature. The very presence of God. We read in chapter 5 about God sitting on the throne. We read in Revelation chapter 14 about those who are before the throne of God in heaven. And in a terrifying way, Revelation chapter 20 at the great white throne talks about how all the unsaved will be brought before the very presence of the Lord, but they will be cast into the lake of fire. The throne of God is a theme in the book of Revelation. It is a theme that deals with the blazing, the awesome, the majestic, and the immediate presence of the holy, holy, holy God. When the Bible says in Revelation 7.15 that we are before the throne of God, that phrase highlights the splendid sovereignty the majestic might, the crowning kingship of the Lord Jesus. And we think about the presence of God. Who's in the immediate presence of God? Well, right now, the holy angels enjoy the immediate presence of God. But not only do the, immediate, the holy angels, second, the saints of all the ages who have died, they right now are enjoying the immediate presence of God spiritually. Third, the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are enjoying the fullest and the immediate and the blazing presence of infinite joy of being in one another's presence as the only true God in heaven. But one day you'll be there. One day you'll be there. And ponder this for a minute. You won't be there like you are now. You will be sin-free in Emmanuel's land. You'll be able to be in the presence of the holy, holy, holy God. And you will see him as he is. You will forever be with him as he is. You will walk with God, talk with God, rest in God, commune with Christ. For this reason, verse 15, they are before the throne of God. Everywhere you go in heaven will be the immediate presence of God. Everywhere you go. You'll never be out of God's presence. 
You'll never be far from God. You'll never be distant from God. You'll never be out of his sight, and he will never be out of your sight. It really is the fulfillment of Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord. Oh, for that day. When you and I are sin-free in Emmanuel's land. And you and I understand the future certainty that first, heaven is the very presence of God. I want to give you a second future reality. The very future reality that is soon to come for all true believers. Number two, it's this. Heaven is wondrous service to God wondrous service to God. Now, maybe, maybe you might be here thinking, service? Work? How could that be wondrous? Look at verse 15. For this reason, they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. Now, the Greek word for serve in verse 15, if you look at it here, there's a common Greek word for work, or serve in the New Testament. This is a different one. The word here is where we get our English word liturgy. It has to do with ministering as a priest. It has to do with religious service to God. It has to do with worship, with praise, with service. It means that we will always do the bidding of God perfectly in glory, as if we were priests. Perfect. Forever. And this is how Revelation 22, verse 3 says it. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. Now, we all know that we ought to work for the glory of God. Whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Paul says in Colossians, whatever you do, work at it heartily for the Lord and not for men. We get that. You see, God created Adam to work in the garden. That was not a result of the fall. Work was created as good. It's a good thing to work. And then sin entered the world. Jesus Christ came as the second Adam, and he did his work perfectly in obeying the Father. Angels adore Christ, and they serve him perfectly, and they do his bidding. But right now, you and I work. And it's tough. It can be toilsome. It can be hard. It can be frustrating. But why did God create work? Just a little footnote to all of this, but why are we to work? Well, first, we're to glorify God. Work is to glorify God. Second, it is to provide, right? We work for an income. We work to be paid so that we can provide. Third, we work to eat. We work, Ephesians 4 says, to give to others, right? Let a man no longer steal, but let him work with his hands so that he can share with those who have need. We work, guess what? To sleep well. One of, the, one of the purposes of work in the Bible is to be tired at the end of the day so that you sleep well. And another reason for work, 
It's to follow God's example because he worked six days. He rested on the seventh. And then a final reason to work that I have here listed is to stay out of trouble. To stay out of trouble. And yet heaven, heaven is a place of perfect work. But right now, if we're honest, you and I might say, you know what? I get distracted with my work. We kind of work half-hearted sometimes. We often can compare ourselves with others. We can get jealous. We can get envious. We can be prideful. We can be arrogant. We can toil and complain and grumble and moan. And we get tired. And we have to rest. And we have to sleep. And we have to recuperate. And, And yet all of this is mingled with our sin and the body of sin and our attitude of sin. But one day, that'll be no more. One day, you will work as a perfect worshiper forever. Revelation 7 verse 15 says that we are before the throne of God and we serve him day and night. Could you imagine to serve God as his priests? We do his bidding. We praise him. We remember his sacrifice. We speak of his worth. We thank him for grace. We obey him as his ambassadors. Can you imagine a day of perfect work? And. One more little point that's neat in the middle of verse 15. Do you see where we will serve God? In his temple. But maybe your mind is thinking like a temple building, you know, a Solomonic temple or Herod's temple or something. But the Greek word is not the temple building. The Greek word is the holy of holies. You're not just going to be on the outer courts. You're not just going to be on the fringe of a temple. You're going to serve God in the very holy of holies, the inner sanctuary, the very immediate presence of God. And that'll be us. Serving God fully, truly, happily, eternally, mightily, forever in glory. What are these future certainties that we have. Number one, heaven is the very presence of God. Number two, heaven is the wondrous service to God. Oh, for that day. Number three, let me give you a third future certainty. Something that I want you to hear, something that I want you to Be gripped by. Number three, heaven is the undiminishing comforts with God. Undiminishing comforts with God. Because at the end of verse 15, if you look at Revelation 7, that God who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. Verse 16, they will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. Now, what a, what a theological topic here. Tabernacle. End of verse 15, he who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle. Why a tabernacle? Why? Why tabernacle? Because in the book of Exodus, chapter 25, verse 8, God said to Moses, build a tabernacle for me 
so that I may dwell among them. God wants to dwell among his people. And then later on, Exodus 29, verse 45, so that I may dwell among them and be their God. The text says at the end of verse 15, if you see it here in your Bible, God who sits on the throne will spread his tabernacle over them. That was the presence of God among his people. In John chapter 1, we learn that this is the dwelling of Christ in the incarnation among us. And even John 14 verse 23 tells us that Jesus dwells in us right now spiritually as the church. He makes his abode with us. But but one day, one day in heaven, get this. One day in heaven, God is going to spread his tabernacle of dwelling over you forever in glory, signifying God's presence with you forever, signifying his protection of you forever, signifying security of you forever, signifying praising his name forever, and the absence of all pollution forever. I will will spread my tabernacle over them. Now, the same language is found in Revelation 21. Context of the new heavens and the new earth there. In Revelation 21, verse 3, John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. Why Revelation 21.3? Why all this talk about tabernacle? Here's what God conveys. Intimacy. Intimacy. It's nearness. It's communion. It's fellowship with God. No separation forever. And a lot of this language, as we're talking about dwelling is actually language that was used in Ezekiel chapter 37. And you know this because it is the context of the new covenant. In Exodus chapter 37, verse 26, God said, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It'll be an everlasting covenant with them. I will place and multiply them and set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place will be with them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Can you imagine God saying, I'm making a covenant with you. You will be mine. I will be yours. I will comfort you. You will see me. You will touch me. You will converse with God. You will serve Christ. You will delight in him forever, undiminishing. And not just undiminishing intimacy and nearness with God. But look at Revelation 7, verse 16. John speaks of those in heaven. They will hunger no longer, nor thirst anymore, nor will the sun beat down on them, nor any heat. This is a quotation from Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 10. 
The context is all about the salvation that comes in Jesus the servant. Here's what Isaiah 49.10 says. They will not hunger, nor will they thirst, nor will the scorching heat or sun strike them down. For God who has compassion on them, he will lead them and guide them to springs of water. What an amazing God that he is the one who tells us that there will be all comforts forever in our God. It was a few generations ago that one Christian was commenting on this topic of heaven, and here's what he said. He said, what comfort there is in glory. There will never be anything anymore to taint, nothing to sully, nothing to embitter, nothing to wound, no serpent to tempt, no Eve to ensnare, no spoiler to destroy, no sin to defile, no adversary to sadden, no misunderstanding to alienate, no tongue to defame, no suspicion to chill, no tear of sadness, no sickness, no pain, no death, no grave, no parting ever anymore. Hallelujah. Oh, for that day, When God will spread his tabernacle over us as a sign of nearness and communion and presence with God. As God says, you are mine and I am yours forever. And why that language in verse 16 of hungering nor thirsting and the sun beating down on them? Because he's quoting from Isaiah, and that's what Jesus the servant does back in Isaiah. This is the work of God. It's the work of Christ. And so we learn the third future certainty of heaven. That heaven is undiminishing comforts with God. Let me give you a fourth, a fourth. As we continue to work through Revelation chapter 7, here's the fourth future certainty for you, Christian. This is, this is your future home. Number four, heaven is the loving care of God. The loving care of God. So many come from broken homes. So many come from divorced homes. So many come from homes with blended families and fathers and mothers that were imperfect as we all are. And yet so many might look back and think, how could somebody talk about a loving father? I remember when I was at the Master's Seminary, I took a class by Dr. John Hanna. John Hanna was a professor at Dallas Seminary at the time. He was teaching church history and theology And the class that I took was on the life and the theology of Jonathan Edwards. And I'll never forget, Dr. John Hanna said this, you know what's going to amaze you in heaven? Three things. Number one, who's there? Number two, who's not there? And number three, that you're there. What's going to amaze you when you're in heaven? Sure, who's there and who's not there, but what's really going to amaze you in heaven? It's that you're there. And we read this in verse 17. The lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd. Do you see that word lamb? 
See that word lamb? That's the theme of the whole book of Revelation. You can't miss it. It's as if John says 29 times in this book, the lamb, the lamb, the lamb as a reference to Jesus Christ. It is the dominant theme in the whole book of Revelation. Why? To signify substitution. A lamb has to die. A lamb has to be sacrificed. Blood has to be shed. Jesus is the lamb. It also signifies humility. It signifies meekness and service and worship and praise. The lamb in the center of the throne will be your shepherd. What loving care. Isaiah chapter 40 talks about a loving shepherd as our God who carries the weak sheep in his arms. The Bible describes Jesus as the good shepherd. He's described as the great shepherd. He's spoken of as the chief shepherd. He is the providing shepherd, the protecting shepherd, the sacrificing shepherd. He is the loving shepherd. When there is one who is wandering off, he leaves the 99 and he goes to find the lost sheep. He finds that lost sheep, he picks it up, and he carries it home. What a loving, caring shepherd. According to Jesus' own words in John chapter 10, We read this in verse 11. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life, not for every person who's ever lived. He lays down his life for the sheep. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20, we read about the blood of the covenant of Jesus, the chief shepherd, and he would be raised from the dead. Way back in the book of Psalms, a very familiar psalm, Psalm 23, which we all probably know by heart. David said, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He converts my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me, your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You have anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Hear this about heaven. Surely goodness and loving kindness. In the Hebrew, they run after you. All the days of your life, and you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, Revelation teaches that the lamb in the center of the throne will be your shepherd. What does that mean? He loses none. He knows them all. He loves them purely. He carries them sweetly. He keeps them truly, and he knows every one of them by name. The question is, are you one of his sheep? Is he your shepherd? Have you come to trust in this one as the only one who died? Can take away your sin, take the judgment that you deserve and the penalty that you have earned because of your sin. Have you come to believe in this shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep?
And when heaven is described back in Revelation 7, verse 17, as the lamb in the center of the throne as their shepherd, the point is this. What loving care. What a shepherd. What a substitute. What a God. What a merciful, loving, caring shepherd he is. And if all of that wasn't enough, those four future certainties about heaven, there's one more that you got to get. Number five, and it's found right here at the end of verse 17, and it's this. Number five, heaven is the ever-increasing joy with God. Ever-increasing joy with God. Because... Verse 17 says, the lamb in the center of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of the water of life and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Maybe you're here today and you're discouraged. Whatever discouragement you face, lift up your heart to God in heaven and contemplate the heavenly glory of Christ. Whatever unknown prospect might be in front of you in your life, lift up your heart to God in heaven and contemplate the heavenly glory of Christ. Maybe you're here today and you're disappointed. You're you're extremely disappointed in something that has happened Lift your heart to God in heaven and contemplate the heavenly glory of Christ. Whatever lonely disposition you might be in, lift up your heart to God in heaven and contemplate the heavenly glory of Christ. Whatever ailment, disease, illness, or affliction that you are battling right now, lift up your heart to God in heaven And contemplate the heavenly glory of Christ. Because that's what heaven is. In verse 17, it is the heavenly glory of Christ. He will guide you to the springs of the water of life. Didn't God say in Isaiah 55, come to the waters without money. Come, buy and eat. Didn't Jesus say in John 4, 14, you will have a well of water springing up to eternal life with the water that I give you. In Revelation 21, 6, in the new heavens, there's a spring of the water of life. In Revelation 22, verse 1, there is the river of the water of life that comes from God's presence. What a great God who gives the springs of the waters of life, meaning infinite, ever-increasing joy in God. And then the end of verse 17, God will wipe every tear from their eye. And you think, "That, that is just awesome. It's a quote from Isaiah 25. When Isaiah 25, verse 8 says, God will wipe tears away from all faces. 
And then later on in Revelation 21, verse 4, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. What's the point of that? Why does God say that in the Bible three times? Because there is boundless joy being in heaven. Ceaseless joy, undistracted joy, mighty joy, boundless joy, corporate joy forever. The Bible teaches that God will give you a new body. Not earthy, but heavenly. And you will have a new body with a new capacity to know God fuller and to study Jesus Christ more and to deepen your love for him into all of eternity. So as eternity goes on for millions of ages, our joy will increase in God for millions of ages. Why does the Bible say so much about heaven as being in the presence of Christ. Why why is heaven fixated on being with Christ? Well, probably for a couple of reasons. Number one, you can't get to heaven without Christ. You'll never get to heaven without Christ. His is the blood passport that you need in order to enter the heavenly land. Number two, why is heaven so fixated on Christ? Because in heaven, your faith becomes the true sight of Christ. Number three, heaven is so fixated on Christ because when you're there, you will be fully conformed to the image of Christ. Fully, fully conformed to him. Number four, in heaven, his glory, that is the glory of Christ, will always shine there. So there might be a sun, but there won't be the need for the sun. There might be a moon, but there won't be the need for the moon. There might be stars in the new heavens and the new earth, but there won't be the need for the heavenly luminaries. Why? Because the glory of Christ will always shine there and his praises will never grow old. Number five, why is heaven so fixated on Christ? Because the living church will be married to Christ and we will express the love of a bride to her husband when we are finally with him forever. Why is heaven so fixated on Christ? Number six, because God will give you greater capacities to observe him, to learn him, to worship him, to praise him for his infinite, unfathomable, bottomless, inexhaustible beauties. And this is the hope of heaven. This is your home. And the only way that you can have this as your home is if verse 14 of Revelation 7 is true of you. That you must be washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. You must be washed and made white In the blood of the Lamb. And boys and girls, you think if you put blood on a white shirt, does that make it clean? And we might think, well, no, it doesn't. But in God's framework, it does. Because you're stained with your sin. And we are stained with our iniquity. 
And we are stained with our rebellion. And it is only the crimson blood of Christ that can rescue us from the wrath of God and deliver us from the judgment of come. So that's why there's a call for all that are here. Any who might be unconverted. Any who might be outside of Jesus Christ. For, for you to hear about the home of heaven. And heaven is not fixated on you. And it's not fixated on this world. And it's not fixated on your money and your hobbies. It's fixated on Christ. Maybe you're here today and you're self-righteous. And you walk by and you think, I'm good. And you go through your life and you think, I'm good. And you, you think, well, I'm better than the other people. And I'm not that bad. And I try hard. And I've gone to church. And I've been baptized. And I do believe. Of course I believe. A lot of people believe. The Bible says even the demons believe. But do you truly surrender in genuine faith in Christ alone? You must do that. You must be saved by Christ and by him alone. Maybe someone's here today and you're just living a worldly life. You've got a worldly life or maybe you've got a hidden life of sin or, or maybe you're just here today and you're just an outright Christ rejecter. You, you don't live for Christ. You don't care about Christ. You're indifferent about Christ. You're apathetic toward Christ. You're not mad at him, but you just don't want to live for him. Come. Come to Christ. Believe upon him. In Jesus' own words, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. You must repent and believe in the gospel. You must forsake your self-confidence. You must forsake your wicked ways. And you must cling to Jesus Christ and him alone. Or to think of it very simply like this. To repent is to say no to sin. And to believe is to say yes to Jesus. You must repent and believe. And to do it today. And to do it now. Because if heaven will not be your home, then your home will be in the presence of God, but in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone forever and ever and ever. But for believers, we who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, we we are made white. What should we do? How do we respond? Number one, we ought to pause and ponder your arrival there. Think about it. Ponder it more. Think about it. Get lost in the imaginations of arriving in glory. Number two, as believers, you and I should think and yearn for your home there. Because if, if we're really honest, thinking about this metaphor rightly, we're just on a road trip and we're staying at a hotel here. And we've not even arrived to our home yet. We ought to think and yearn for heaven. Number three, you and I, believer, we ought to speak of and remind fellow saints of heaven. And number four, we ought to fight sin because we will be free from sin there. Number five, we ought to commune and grow with Christ with all of our might. With all of our might. Because the center of heaven is Christ. And the glory of heaven is Christ. And what is it to be in heaven? Paul said in Philippians 1, it's to be with Christ. 
So may your life and my life be descriptive of here's a man, here's a woman who lives with Christ. What a wonderful home that we have that awaits us. Five future certainties that is true for you and for me, child of God. You who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and you've been made white in his blood. The story is told of a man named William Montague Dyke. When he was 10 years old, he was blinded in an accident. And despite the crippling disability, he graduated from a university in England with pretty high honors and with some great prestigious privileges. But while he was in the university, he fell in love with a daughter of a high-ranking British naval officer. He loved her. She loved him. And when they graduated, they were engaged to be married Not long before the wedding, William had planned for an eye surgery in hopes that maybe that procedure, just maybe, might restore his sight. If if the procedure failed, well, he would just continue living blind for the rest of his life. But, But if the procedure was a success, he wanted the very first person he saw to be the bride on their wedding day. Well, the wedding day arrived, and the many, many guests, the royalty and the cabinet members and distinguished men and women of society were all there at this wonderful wedding. And the father of the groom was there, and the surgeon was there who performed the surgery, and the eyes of this young man were still covered with bandages after the surgical procedure. So when the the ceremony began, the organ began to play, and the wedding march proceeded, and the bride walked slowly down the aisle, all the way to the front. As soon as the bride arrived at the very front to the altar, the surgeon took a pair of scissors out of his pocket. And he very carefully went up to this young man, William Montague Dyke, and he cut carefully the bandages off of the eyes of William. And tension filled the room. Was the surgery going to be a success? Were, Were his eyes... Healed, could he have his sight? And the congregation of witnesses held their breath as they waited for the bandages to be removed and for his eyes to be opened. And then when the surgeon took off the bandages, he opened his eyes and with a beaming smile on his face, he saw his bride. And he said, you are more beautiful than I ever imagined. In a similar way. One day the bandages that cover your eyes will be removed. One day they will be removed and you will stand face to face with Jesus Christ and you will look upon him and you will say, you are more beautiful than I ever imagined. Because as Isaiah says, you will 
Behold the king in all of his beauty. May the Lord encourage your heart and my heart. What is the glory of heaven? It is Christ. 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 Let's pray. Father, thank you for the hope that you have given to us. Thank you for the promise in the book of Revelation that we who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb, we are made white, we will be in glory. Oh, let us glory in our Redeemer. We glory, we glory in Him. Hallelujah. What a Savior. In Jesus' name.